Let's turn to God's Word this morning. I'm going to actually turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We've been in a series that we've entitled Ready. We're looking at the first and second letters uh, that Paul wrote to a first century church in a modern day city of Thessalonica. He wrote it in the first century, and it was uh, a city in the, in the nation of Greece. And he's been sharing with this church how they are to be ready to serve and please God, how they're ready to live upright and holy lives, how they are to be ready for the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how they are to be ready to love one another. And Paul now, as we find ourselves in chapter 5, is beginning to close out this first letter, and he's got some final instructions for us. And what he's going to do uh, in verses 12 uh, through the end of the chapter is he's going to address in machine gun-like fashion, I mean, boom, 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 he's going to nail all of these final instructions and do so knowing that the people of God would hear his instructions and know exactly what to do with it. And this morning, we come before this passage with things to work on. Now, Paul is going to address these things, not because they were failing per se, but because they needed to be reminded. And what a truth for us as a church today. I think Village is doing a phenomenal job. In many ways, we are very proud, if you can say, proud of the work that is being done in the lives of the people at Village Bible Church. But that doesn't mean, just as Paul says, that we can stop doing what God has called us to, that we need to keep doing what we've been doing in the past and do it all the more. And so Paul's going to give us instructions this morning. Uh, but let's look at what his instructions are and then let's move forward and see how God has called us uh, to serve and honor him in a way that will be uh, glorifying uh, to our Lord and Savior. Here's what Paul says, starting in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 12 of chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Father God, we ask your blessing on the reading of your word. We pray that all of us in this room will hear it, will apply what it says, not only to our hearts and to our minds, but to every action that we live out. Father, that we would leave today more like you, changed and transformed by the challenge of your word this morning. Teach us from your word, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, about two weeks before the day would arrive, I would start getting nervous. I knew the day was coming. I knew what it was going to say, and I knew the trouble I was going to find myself in. Report cards were coming out, and I recognized and knew that it was going to be an evaluation that would remind me of all of my laxness, if you will, uh, during the days of education in the quarter beforehand. I knew what the teacher was going to say. I knew that she was going to be honest and open, and I knew my parents' response would be swift and be filled with justice and wrath. And I came to really despise that day. 
I wasn't all that great of a student, and I knew that that day would mean that I would be grounded, and it would mean things were taken from me. Well, this last week was report card week in the Badal home. I told my youngest son on the way to church this morning, I got your report card, and I'm going to show the church. He freaked out. He says, is it good? Is it bad? What will people say? I said, it's all good, son. You're going to be okay. Then he says, then show it to everybody. All right? And what I want to show you is, is that report cards uh, break down their evaluation. Uh, on Luke's report card, the first thing that it addresses is your relationship, the student's relationship with the curriculum. How is the child doing at the information that they are learning? And so they give grades for that. They're doing well, they're understanding and, and applying the truth that they're learning. The second thing that it asks is, how is the child's relationship with the teacher? When the teacher tells you to do something, are you doing it? Uh, are you helpful in class or are you causing harm in class? Or are you one who promotes a positive learning experience? Are you one who causes distractions? Are you willing to listen to rules or not? Then the final relationship that it has is the relationship to the curriculum, the relationship to the teacher, and then the relationship with one another. It asks the question, do you play well with others? Are you courteous and respectful to everyone? Are you willing to work cooperatively? Are you able to work in groups and cause for greater discussion to take place? Oh, then, by the way, do you use uh, legible handwriting? Of which we didn't do so well. That and punctuation. Badal's not very good at writing or knowing when to stop a sentence, okay? But here's the thing. We talk about report cards, and Paul gives, if you will, a report card. A report card overseeing three things. Thessalonica, church, how are you doing at your relationship with your leaders? Thessalonians, how are you doing your relationship with God? How are you doing your relationship with others? And in some ways, how are you doing in your relationship with yourself? How are you doing with the Word of God being taught? Are you listening to what it says? And, and what is true for the Thessalonian church is true for us today. We have to continually be doing an evaluation, and the Word of God is our teacher when it says you've got to ask yourself some questions this morning. And so this morning, by the teaching of God's Word, I want you to give yourself a report card. I want you to grade yourself and ask the question, am I satisfactory in this area? Is this area in need of improvement? Or is this area in an unsatisfactory, meaning I'm not living up to the place that I should, and massive changes need to take place? Well, Paul addresses it in our text. First of all, he wants us to do an evaluation with regards to our relationship with our leadership. Our relationship with our leadership. Notice in verse 11, Paul begins, I'm sorry, verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you, that you are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I want you to recognize everything Paul's going to say, there's a reason for it. The reason for it is there's areas of improvement. Paul doesn't come up with this stuff out of thin air. Neither does our teachers. Our teachers don't go, okay, what can I say about the Badal kids today? What can I say about them? Oh, I'll just throw some things out there just to fill paper. We're expecting that our teachers are going to tell us real areas where we are doing well, real areas where we can see some improvement. Paul says over and over in this, in this letter that the church is doing a wonderful job. Not a perfect job, 
but a good job. And he wants them to continue the good work, but there are areas of improvement. And so notice in the phrase, he doesn't say, we implore you, we command you, we demand of you. He uses the phrase, we ask you. That word ask is a gentle word. It's a word that says, we want you to consider these things. We want you to think about these things. We don't need to demand it because you're already doing these things, but we want to see you do them all the more. And he begins by saying, we want you to think about your relationship with your leaders. Now, the leaders of the church, there's always been leaders within the church. From its beginning, the leadership of the church was, was consisted of, uh, of the 12 apostles. Those that had walked and talked with Jesus, who had been a part of Jesus' earthly ministry. But in the early days of the book of Acts, we see a transition move from the apostles to this group that are called elders. Now, those two groups are different. Apostles are not elders, uh, but elders could have been apostles. We know that Peter, uh, in his letter to the church, says that he is an elder within the church. Instead of using the word apostle, he uses the term elder for his position. And we recognize that about Acts chapter 10, that this transition almost becomes complete, that the elders are given charge of leading the church. Now, the elders' job is to be, in many ways, listen, little examples of Jesus Christ. Our job is we are middle managers who have an overseer named Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd, 1 Peter tells us. And our job is to serve as little examples of Christ. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but men who are above reproach, who honor God with their lives and can serve as models for what Christ's likeness looks like in the real world. Now, the job of the, uh, of the elders is to do a couple things. And I want you to see, first of all, before we get to your response to elders, what our job is. Now, I want to tell you, this is a bit awkward, because I'm telling you here in a couple moments how you need to treat me and the team of elders. And I recognize that's a bit odd. I'm going to tell you in a moment you need to respect us. I'm going to tell you in a moment that your job is to recognize the role that we're playing. And so I'm going to let the Word of God do a lot more of that. But before we go there, I want you to notice what the Word of God says about our job to you. First of all, write this down. It's not in your outlines, but the job of the elders is threefold. First of all, it is uh, the job of the leaders to labor, to labor among you. Notice the text. It says that you are to respect those who labor among you. That word labor uh, in the Greek is a word that means to work with great efforts, Great exertion of energy to the point of sweat and exhaustion. It speaks of one who does so with an intense toiling to the point of utter exhaustion. It was spoken of someone who had just gotten through a beating. Literally, he had taken a beating. Okay, that's where the phrase comes from. And so the elder's job is to be one who is busy doing the work of the Lord. Now, there are two groups of people that I want to talk to. First of all, I want to talk to the pastors in our midst, those who serve as elders, and most especially those like myself who have a vocation of ministry. You cannot be lazy. 
The ministry, by its job description here in the text, tells us that we should be sweating doing the work of the Lord. It's not called the vacation of the Lord. It's not called the fun of the Lord. It's called the work of the Lord. And we are to do it with a strenuousness that causes us at times to be out of breath, that causes us at times to be sweaty, that causes us at times to be weary. And so this is a calling to any of the elders in their midst. Paul says, listen, if you think you can be a servant of God's and leadership within the church and you're not working hard, then you're not leading. Leaders labor. And we need to recognize that this morning. So that's a call of obedience to those who are serving. But might I add also, there's the other side, and it's the parishioners who look, and I know the running joke of, of pastors is pastors work one day a week, okay? And there are many that will say, you know what, I, I sure would like to be a pastor, to be able to come in when I want, to go home when I want, to be able to do what I want, and, and, and that's what pastoral ministry is all about. Here's the thing that needs to be brought into uh, your thinking. Many of you know I'm bivocational. I run my own catering business, and that's hard work. And I work long hours doing that. I want to affirm something because I'm one of you in many ways. I work for a living, if you will. And I understand that you can look at pastors and say, well, they don't do much. or It's an easy job. Let me assure you of something. I will give my all in catering for hours on and work a full 14, 16 hour day, I will do that with ease compared to dealing with a Sunday shepherding the people of God. Because it is so draining. Here's why. I can serve people food, that's easy. I don't have to worry about them. I don't really have to think about them. I don't have to wonder about them. All I gotta do is put food on the plate and send them out, that's, that's it. It's a task, I can do it, okay? But when you're dealing with the church, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with the eternity of people. You're dealing with whether they're making life or death decisions. You're kneeling next to them in the hospital bed. You're dealing with them when their marriages are falling apart. You're addressing issues between people who are fighting. You're trying to figure out how to manage the money that God has put in, in your charge and to do it well. And here's the thing. At the end of my days of catering, I can look and I can say everybody's full. Everybody's got the food. But when it comes to pastoring, the scripture says, number one, the teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. Ugh, I don't like that. It also tells me that I will one day give an account over the flock under my care. That means Jesus, the righteous judge, is going to pull me aside and every other elder who has served, not only in this church, but in all churches, and say, hey, let's have a conversation. How well did you do at leading the church that I gave you? Those were my people. I gave them as loan to you. How did you work with them? Here's the thing. There will not be a line for caterers. How did you do at that event? God's not all that concerned about that. He figures they got fed, they're taken care of. We didn't kill anybody, that's a plus, right? That's always a win, okay? But when it comes to pastoral work, that is excruciating. That is painful. And so we need to recognize the men who are going to serve are going to labor. You are going to see them using all of their might to serve the Lord. So it's a reminder to um, the lazy, if you will. And it's a reminder to the laity that if you think that serving God is easy, then you've never done it. You've never done it. The second thing that people, the leaders are to do is they are to labor, they are to lead. Write that down. They are to lead. Notice the phrase, they are over you 
in the Lord. They are over you in the Lord. Now, that's hard for us as Americans to understand because we are our own people. Uh, the authority in, in, in all of it comes down to us. And we don't want people treading on our lives. That was what the rev- revolution was all about. We wanted to be represented, but we wanted to tell that representation what they could and couldn't do. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, these elders have been called by me. Notice, they lead you in the Lord. God is the one who appoints leaders. Now, we've had Bill and Paula up here, and we've asked you to affirm that. But here's the thing. God is the one who put that calling in Bill's life. God's the one who put that calling in my life. God is the one who appoints leaders. He's the one that puts leaders in power. He's the one who takes leaders out of their positions of authority. It is God. And so their job is to lead. That word there is the Greek word promistomai. And the word there literally means to exercise a position of rule, direction, to preside over, to lead. Now, the phrase in the Lord says that the job is for us to serve in such a way as advocates for our God. And so, listen, your job as a congregation is to follow the leading of the leaders that God has put in your midst. They have the job of following Christ. And if they don't do it, God says, I'll take care of them. Your job is to lead. Now, does that mean right away you get the question, well, what if leaders tell me to do something that's not right? Well, within our membership commitment, the elders of the church say, we want you to lead or to follow our lead. We want you to submit to our lead. We want you to trust our leading. We want you to respect uh, those who are in authority over you. But we put a, a proviso, if you will, a disclaimer in there. You don't have to follow us if we're not following Christ. And so in our phraseology, we say, as we biblically shepherd. And so if we tell you, okay, to do something that's outside of the will and plan of God, outside of the word of God, you're not to do it. You're to disobey. And you're to disobey because it is more important to obey God and his word than obey man. This obedience comes to a group of people, listen, who lead and labor, but who do not lord it over. There's a difference between leading and lording it over. Lording it over is a guy who stands and points, okay? Go do this, go do that. Um, and they say, well, you coming with? No, no, I'm going to stand here and I'll supervise, okay? I'll do this. Here at, at Village Bible Church, you will not see that. You're not going to see a bunch of guys who make decisions in a boardroom who are not doing the work. And so you're going to see elders, just like you heard Bill today, serving at the name tag table, serving in places that nobody will see, uh, serving uh, food and serving, uh, taking out the trash and, and uh, guys serving in the landscaping team. We need to be in the trenches, not a group of men in an ivory tower making decisions for our subjects. When we do that, And when we lead that in love, your job is to follow. Now, notice there was one more thing. There's three things. We are to labor well. We are to lead well. And then the third thing I'm going to say is our job is to lecture you. That doesn't sound very nice. To lecture you. Notice the phrase, to admonish you. That word admonish literally means to get into your head. And the way you get into the head of people is you teach over and over and over again. So every Sunday, the elders admonish you through the role that I play. Listen, I want to make this clear. I am not just a pastor of preaching, but I serve as the director of communications for the elder team. 
Does that make sense? The elders have, have guided me and led me uh, through uh, their understanding of the scriptures and what we need to be doing, and I'm their press secretary. And my job each and every Sunday is to get into your head, okay, and to get in your head over a particular thing. Here's what it is. Christ has called us to go to the right. Stay away from the left. Keep heading to the right. And so you're going to hear over and over again, go this way, go this way, go this way. Each and every Sunday we pick up this book and we read it and we open it and we admonish you from it so that it gets into your head to go the way of God, not the way of man. And we want to do that. And we're going to lecture you over and over again. This word admonish literally is to speak strongly into the life of another. Because we recognize as elders, as sinners ourselves, that the other voice in the world outside of the scripture is the world. And it says, be self-centered, be self-sufficient, be restless in your pursuit of your desires and preferences instead of following Christ. And we want to lecture over and over and over again, go to Christ, don't go to the way of man. So we lead, we labor, and we lecture. All of this must be done. Notice the phrase in there. It must be done in love. It must be done in love. The church has to be led by leaders who love. And I can assure you that when I get together, like I said, with now the over 20 elders at each of the camp, consisting of all the campuses of village, they are a group of men who love this church. They love to serve this church. They are concerned for the church. And they long to serve the church in that way. So then what's the response? As you have leaders who labor, who lead, who lecture well, and who love, you as a church need to recognize them. Notice the phrase there. It says that you are to respect those who labor among you. And so the first idea is you need to respect, literally is the phrase recognize. It's the Greek word adu. Uh, it gives the idea that you are not ignorant concerning them. You know who they are. So the first thing is, is you know them enough that you know not only who they are, but what they are doing. And so it's important that as elders, we continue to give opportunities for our elders to be seen so that the congregation knows who they are. You've got to recognize them. Literally what Paul is saying is here, get to know your leaders. Understand who they are and don't ignore them. Okay? It's easy to ignore those leaders. And here's a way that we ignore them. We see what they're doing and we badmouth what they're doing without really giving them the benefit of the doubt. But if we recognize that they're laboring well, they're leading well, they're trying to do so in love, even when they teach us, they're trying to do it in love, that even when a decision we don't like goes down, we're willing to say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, because they are men that are seeking to strive to honor God. We need to recognize them. Notice he says next, to respect them, verse 13, and to esteem them very Highly. It would have been enough for him to say and to esteem them, uh, to put them in high regard. But Paul adds the modifier to do it very highly. Now, there's one of two ways that churches can go with regards to dealing with their pastors, okay, and those who lead over them. 
And I've seen it as I've done much work uh, as, a, as a caterer in the lives of churches. I've been able to see how people respond to their pastors. And there's two uh, polarizing spectrums you can go to. The first one you can go to is the pastor's no different than anybody else. And it's this idea that he's a man like us. He's got sins just like we do. He's got problems. He's got idiosyncrasies. He's no different than any one of us. And so let's treat them that way. And they're treated just like everybody else that comes and goes. Not badly, but just everybody's generic. There's no role or, or gifting that is to be elevated in any way. On the other side of it, you have churches that will, with high esteem, go too far Okay, and what we hear about these things, and it will come out, we will see it in exorbitant salaries, okay, where the pastor's making a lot more money than the average individual within the congregation is, and lavish opportunities to do things. So they're flying around in, in uh, private jets, going to, uh, you know, very uh, ritzy um, places, and their vacations are vacations that nobody else in the church would be a part of. They've got fringe benefits that are out of this world. They're given titles, titles, the most reverend, distinguished bishop of, and you just keep naming the the titles, and they build these titles up. They are given places of prominence. I've been in churches where I've catered events that the event doesn't start, the menu isn't selected until the pastor does all of the picking, where he's going to sit, what they're going to eat, and all of that. And this is a problem. Uh, one website I always go through and, and, and find different websites as I'm searching for things to help the church, you know, in, in leading it. And I came upon a church in Chicago. And the church had a, a big section on their website called the Pastoral Care Team. And I said, oh, very interesting. Let's find out what their elders are doing. I'm thinking the Pastoral Care Team is the pastors caring for the people. I was wrong. The Pastoral Care Team, I clicked on it, had a PDF. I pulled up the PDF. And it had dozens of individuals whose job was, in the, in the um, job description, was to give the pastor, his wife, and family the greatest comfort on the Lord's day. I was like, I like that. I want, let's, let's talk about that. Okay? Then there was a job description of all the things that needed to be done. There was to be a group of people that were there in the morning to serve the breakfast to the pastor. And so they would go and they would prepare and there was a menu, what the pastor wanted, how he wanted it, okay, how the toast was to be uh, toasted and all of that, where the newspaper was supposed to be on Sunday morning in the particular armchair. Once pastor and his wife were ready to go to church, a car would pick up pastor and said wife and they would take them and they would be driven to church. While they were at church, a whole nother team would come in, would vacuum, would dust, would fold laundry, you name it, they would take care. I'm telling you, we're going to get this ministry locked in here, okay? They're going to take care of it. The thing I loved was that the first lady, I love that phrase, the first lady of the church loved vacuum marks in her carpeting. And she wanted vacuum marks when she got home in the carpeting. So you were to vacuum in a certain way. When you, they got home, they would be received with a lunch, a roast, okay, large enough not only to take care of the pastor and his family, but if he desired to invite another family to the church, from the church home, that there would be ample food, not only for them, but then it said also for leftovers. Let me tell you something. We're signing this up. I'm all for this. Okay? Here's the problem. The Bible makes it clear that if we are to serve as little examples of Christ as elders, then we came to serve, not be served. 
Now, we need to understand that there's a balance in between the two. So no, you're never going to hear from this pulpit that we need someone to go vacuum our house, right? That's why we have children, amen? Okay? Not congregations, children. But there's a balance, okay? The Bible says to take care of your pastors, to honor them with a double honor. That is to to see to it that their daily necessities and and their daily living is covered so they can give themselves all to the Lord and and to honor them in that way. We are to honor them with our words and affirmation. We are to honor them in, in the giving of gifts. We are to encourage them. We're to do all of that. Now, the spectrum is that we're all the same and that we're superstars. Somewhere in the middle... Paul was wanting the Thessalonians and Village Bible Church to know your elders and leaders are special men who have been given charge to lead you. Recognize that, respect that, but do that within the confines of what is acceptable. And here's what Paul says, you're doing it. You're honoring them. And I'm here to tell you that as at Village Bible Church, right now we're in the process of doing evaluations with our staff. And and one of the questions is, is how, how are things going? How is the church treating you? And the staff has to answer that question. How's the church? And i got to be honest with you. Here's what they've said. They don't like us. They don't take care of us. They don't minister. No, none of that has been said. Our staff is one of the most joy-filled staff. When you ask them, how is Village Bible Church taking care of them? They say, they are loving us. They are caring for us. They're meeting our needs. They're ministering to us as a family. And so my word to you is, keep up the good work. And my word to the elders is, labor for the Lord, knowing that the work you're doing is right. Now, here's what he says. Notice in the phrase, why would we do it? He says there in the phrase, you're to esteem because of their work. Here's why. The reason why you want to take care of your elders in a God-honoring way is the work they're doing is focused in on you. As we do our work, if we're doing it right, then it's ministering to you. You want to make sure that the job of the elder is not a burden, but a joy. And the Bible says, what good is that for you to have leaders who are burdened? And so what he's saying is, is it does you no good to make the life of your leaders hard. Make it easy for them to serve because they're doing a kingdom work for you. How are we doing at at, at following our leaders? It's a report card we've got to work through. Notice the second thing that he says. The second thing is he says, now let's ask the question about fellowship. About fellowship. Remember the report card, how are you doing with your teacher? Now this is the question, do you play well with others? Can you work well with others? Paul says, okay, now that you understand the role that you have with your leaders, let's ask the question. And we urge you, brothers, be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's stop there. Paul now turns and he says, listen, you guys are doing a good job, but here are areas that you can do better in. Remember, Timothy has just brought back a report of what's going on in the church, and he's told Paul exactly what's transpiring. And Paul, before he closes out this letter, says, okay, We've got to talk about this fellowship thing. Why? Because here's the thing. There's a saying that says, to be with the saints in heaven, what a joy that will be. But to live with them here on earth is quite another thing. Let me read that again. You obviously didn't get that. To be in heaven with the saints, what a joy that will be. 
But to live here with them on earth is quite another thing. You see, we talk about when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we'll sing and shout the victory, as the old hymn says. But when we live with one another and the agitations begin to cause friction, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a community of other people. Because other people are different. Other people have different personalities. They come from different backgrounds. They have different preferences. They have all different ideas as to how church should go. And Paul has a word for each of them. Being a church isn't easy. It's going to cause conflict at times. And Paul, with staccato-type reminders, says, here, listen, do some evaluating. So he starts with, first of all, resolving to live at peace with one another. Be at peace. The idea here is that you are absent of disturbances. There's an absence of disturbances. What what Paul says in the book of Romans is, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. What that phrase means, and this is very important, what that phrase means is you bend over backwards to be at peace with people. So if you find yourself this morning quick to get angry, quick to be judgmental, quick to attack someone who maybe has attacked you. Paul says your job and my job is to bend over backwards, to stretch as far as we can so that we will find peace instead of anger and wrath, that we'll find peace instead of malice and slander, that we'll find peace instead of gossip and lying about another individual. We need to stretch and we need to resolve in our minds when we come to church, there needs to be a resolution in our mind that I am going to bend over backwards and I'm going to believe the best in people instead of hauling off and wanting to hit them when they say the dumb things that they're going to. We need to resolve to do that. Notice number two, Paul says you need to reprimand the unruly. You need to reprimand the unruly. There will be people within the church Paul calls as idle. That word idle is a military term that literally means a soldier who goes AWOL. So the division or the platoon is going one direction and and the other one takes off and he goes a completely different direction. This word in first century Greek was used in in a way of, of painting the picture, probably the best way to say it, is one who likes to color outside the lines, okay? And and so you've got a picture that you're going to color, and of course there's lines to the picture, and the unruly or the idle one doesn't color outside of the lines on accident. The one sees the picture, so let's say we're painting or um, we're coloring a picture of a dog. The one gets there and the unruly one takes the marker and just goes like this. Doesn't care for the lines, doesn't care that they're going against the flow, I'm going to do it my way. Paul says there's going to be people within the church that are going to be unruly. They're going to be idle. They're going to be AWOL. They're going to uh, paint or color outside of the lines. Well, what are the lines? The lines connected to the passage are the lines of what leadership has said. So leadership is going to establish the lines based on the scripture. And the unruly is going to say, well, I don't like what those elders are telling us to do. I don't think we should do that. And who are they to tell me what I can and can't do? So I'm going to color this page however I want to. And the job of leaders is to come and to reprimand them. Notice the phrase in the ESV is to admonish. Again, that it speaks to getting into the head of another and to do so with some level of force. 
Now, this is to be used also by people within the church. So you're sitting in a small group, and, and, and the conversation starts off like this. Okay, I want to have a conversation about those, those crackpot elders. You know, what's this decision they came up with? I can't believe they did this and, and all of that. When you hear something like that, what's happening is, is you've got someone coloring outside of the lines. And they need to be reprimanded. They need to be put in their place and say, hey, wait a minute. Let's be reminded of these men. These men are guys that are laboring. These are guys that are leading. They're trying to love us. They're trying to do the best job. Now, there's not just one of them. There's a collective body of them, and so we're represented well. So so before you start coloring outside of the lines, recognize that we've got good leaders here. Now, if we don't have good leaders, then that's a different story. But as long as you have good leaders, those that are coloring outside of the lines need to be brought back into fellowship in a reprimanding way. But then Paul uses another example. And he says, we've got to reinforce the timid. Verse 14, he says, you need to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Those who are faint-hearted lack the energy and boldness which the um, unruly have. They've got too much of it. The faint-hearted have too little of it. Uh, in the text, the book of Thessalonians, the people, there were those who were faint-hearted. They were worried about criticism. They were worried about persecution. They were worried about their failure to follow the Lord. They were worried about the future and the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were worried about all of the circumstances, and they were faint-hearted. Literally, in the Greek, it means small-souled or little-spirited. It doesn't carry the idea of a mental deficiency or a spiritual deficiency. What it says is they are fretful, discouraged, they are worried. It speaks of a person who feels that their resources are too small for the given situation that they find themselves in, and so they're despondent. The best example of this, we talked about it in our small group this week, was the character Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore never could see what the guys were talking about. He never could get there. And I don't know, guys. I just don't see it. I think this is going to happen. I think that's going to happen. It's not going to end up well. And one of our people in our small group said, here's the amazing thing. Eeyore is never left by himself. Did you notice that? The friends, Winnie the Pooh and, and his friends Tigger and Piglet and all of them, they continue to bring Eeyore back into it. Now listen, what they don't do is give Eeyore the power of definition. Okay? And we shouldn't give those who are struggling in their faith the power of definition because then we'll all be despondent and that's not good, right? And so what our job is to is to put our arm around those Eeyores in our life who are struggling, who are worried, who are anxious, and we need to put our arms around them and encourage them. Remind them that we have a God that is good. Remind them we have a God who's going to answer our prayers. Remind them we have a God whose plans are greater and higher than our plans and ways are. And love on them and minister to them, all the while reinforcing the timidness or faint-heartedness that they have. We need to reinforce the timid. Notice he goes on, and he says we need to reach out to the weak. We need to reach out to the weak. He says we need to help them. Literally, it is those without strength or bodily vigor. The idea here is whether it's, it's physical or spiritual, these are people who are struggling to get through the day. 
And we are to come around them and we are to serve them and take care of them and make sure they don't fall through the cracks and we are to make sure that they have all their needs taken care of and and we build strength into their lives so that they're not forgotten or left in the dust. Paul says, hey, there are going to be some who are going to struggle to get to church. There's going to be struggle to, to even get out of the house and you're to go and minister to them and take care of them. The Bible talks about the job that we have to serve el- uh, orphans and widows in their distress. We're to minister to them. We're to remember and reach out to them. We're to respond, write this down, patiently to everyone. In short, because there are so many different people, because there are so many different types of personalities, so many different backgrounds that we come from, that the response we need to have is to be patient with them all. The idea here literally is to have a long fuse so that you never explode. You see, some of us have a very short fuse. We used to play around with firecrackers as a kid. And every once in a while, we would light a firecracker that uh, had too short of a fuse. Things got dangerous with short fuses. And some of us in this church today have short fuses that the second the spark hits the fuse, you're blowing up. And what Paul says is when you engage in church, when you engage in community, when you engage in ministry with others, if you don't have a large fuse, you're going to blow up. And your blowing up is going to impact people. People are going to be hurt as a result of it. So what Paul says is, I want you to have a macrothumia. The idea is a long fuse, a long uh, temper that allows you to have long suffering so as not to explode to others. We need macrothumia as parents. Long fuses. When they drive us crazy, we need to not jump off the handle, but have a long fuse being patient with them. That will enable us to refuse retaliation, Paul says. He says that we will not repay evil with evil, but seek to do good to one another. You see, it's going to be really um, tempting when people wrong us within the church. Remember, this is in the church. This isn't with unbelievers. This is within the church that there will be some who will wrong us, and our response will be to turn around and give it back to them just as they gave it to us. And Paul says, listen, That's not how you're to respond. If you want to be ready to please God, then you have to be one who's willing to turn away from retaliation and repay good with evil. Paul says in the book of Romans that you are to heat burning coals on their heads, love on them, even all the while while they're hurting you. Uh, The book of Proverbs says that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Our relationship with others. How are you doing? This is a report card time. How is your relationship with others? Are you doing these things? Are you honoring others above yourself? Paul then moves to our worship. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But he deals with our worship. And he gives, again, he he says things very quickly. Notice what he says. Rejoice always in your worship. Pray without ceasing in your worship. Give thanks in all circumstances in your worship. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so how are we to live? Now remember, worship is not just Sunday morning. Everything that we do is is an act of worship. Whether we eat or drink, we do all things to the glory of God. And so Paul says this, write these down. He wants people, followers of Christ, to be distinguished by joy, distinguished by joy, devoted to prayer, and determined to give thanks. What a challenge. I mean, think about it. 
It wouldn't be a problem if the phrase went like this, rejoice sometimes, pray occasionally, and give thanks when you feel like it. He doesn't say that. The modifiers trip us up. The modifiers cause us problem. Always, continually, in all circumstances. This suggests that the real impact of the gospel is going to be seen, listen, not when we recite John 3.16 to somebody, but when they look at our lives, they see that we are filled with joy, that we are dependent in prayer. Man, we go to the Lord in prayer in the good times and the bad times. We're saturating our thoughts and our minds in a spirit of prayer. And that no matter what happens, we can find ways to give thanks. That is how the gospel will affect change in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. You see, these simple commands are what are the true life-changing uh, examples of Christ's power. In this world, you will not have joy. In this world, you will not be devoted to prayer. And in this world, you will live ungrateful lives. But by the gospel, we can change it. And we can be moved in such a way that we can live differently. We need to ask the question this morning, how are we doing with our joy, with our prayer, and with our thankfulness? Well, Paul closes this part of the passage by reminding us of three things that could hinder it. What could keep us from doing this? Notice there are three hindrances. Number one, dismiss the Spirit's leading. The Spirit should be leading you right now to do some different things, to change how you're living, to uh, reorganize some things and evaluate where you're at, doing an inventory in your life. And if you are holding the Spirit off and stiff-arming Him as He draws closer, then you will not live these things out. For the areas of, of improvement that my boys can have in school, if they say, you know what, the teacher doesn't know what she's talking about, and, and, and they're, they're against me, and, and they don't like me, and they're, they're uh, uh, not being very kind to me, well, then nothing is going to change. And some of you hold God at arm's length. I'm not going to change. It's not my problem. It's your problem. The Bible makes it clear. Do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit's at work in the life of the believer. Let Him speak to you. And be ready to change what you need to. Notice in verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. The idea here is don't discount the role of biblical preaching. Paul's talked about end times. We talked about these over the last couple of weeks. And some were saying, you know what, who cares about prophecy? At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Paul says, no, all the teaching of God's word is important and right but hold to what is true and let go of what is not. And so there's areas in our lives that we need to let go of some things and there's some things that we need to hold on to. Well, how do we discern what those things are? Through godly teaching and preaching of his word. And then finally, you want to live right? You want to come away with a solid report card? The Bible says abstain from every form of evil. We cannot delight in our sin and think we're going to do God's best in our lives. And so we've got to abstain from all sorts of evil. And we've talked about that already, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But we know where we should be at. We know what we should be doing. And so the question is, will we live in light of the gospel? And when the report card comes back and says, okay, you're doing well. There's a lot of, uh, my boy did really well this, this quarter. Lots of fours. Fours are positive, okay? But there's some threes, and there's even a couple twos, okay? 
And we can turn away and we say, God, you don't know what you're talking about. Or we can say, you know what, God, you're a good judge. You're a good teacher. And there's some areas I need to work on. And so I'm going to prayerfully consider. I'm going to ask the Spirit to lead me to do better in my pursuit of you. I want to follow you in greater ways. And when we open ourselves up to his evaluation, then the Spirit will work and we will find a more intimate and closer walk with him. And here's the thing, we will be blessed in the process. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you for the word this morning. And I pray that each one who has listened this morning has been able to take something away from it. Lord, we recognize and know you are the great teacher. In different times in scripture, you take opportunity to evaluate our hearts and our actions, uh, to evaluate how we use our lives. And it's in those moments we are quick to stiff arm you and push you away. But Lord, I pray by the Spirit's help this morning that we might listen to your still small voice within us. We would hear the words that are taught by our teachers that remind us of the truth of your scripture that we'd be ready to be admonished by others so that we might do what is right and godly in your eyes. So be, Lord, with this church and with these people. Lord, be with your elders, the leaders of this church. May they lead well and only point to you. May the people of this church follow them, and uh, Lord, in doing so, see the blessing and benefit that comes from honoring godly leaders. Lord, let us serve one another well ministering to one another, caring for one another, being patient with one another. Lord, let our lives be filled with joy, be filled with gladness and thankful hearts. We know, Lord, that there's a watching world out there, and we recognize that they're looking for the answer, and they're wondering if we've got it, and you are articulating it to us today that we can show them the hope that we have by living orderly, godly, and helpful lives within the body life of the church. And so, Lord, I pray with a watching world around us that when people come in contact with Village Bible, that they would see a church that loves one another, that follows well, that leads well, that cares well, for the least all the way to the greatest, for your glory and your renown. Now lead us forth from this place to fellowship, Lord, and uh, bring us back next week as we gather again together. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said.